0: Hello, and welcome to 1867 and all that. Episode eight, William Lyon Mackenzie's very bad day. On the same day that British troops first left Montreal to face off against insurgents in the Richelieu Valley, in Upper Canada, William Lyon Mackenzie wrote this in his newspaper, The Constitution. Oh, Englishmen in Canada and Upper Canadians, have you no brotherly sympathy for the Lower Canadians? Will you calmly and coldly see them put down by military force? No, methinks not. I tell you, if they are put down by soldiers, you will be so too. If the British Kingdom can tax the people of Lower Canada against their will, they will do so with you when you dare to be free. Head has sent down troops. Next, he will try and send you down to put down your countrymen. Before you do so, pause, and consider the world has its eyes on you. History will mark your conduct. Beware lest they condemn. Oh, who would not have it said of him that as an upper Canadian, he died in the cause of freedom. To die fighting for freedom is truly glorious. Who would live and die a slave? This week, we move upriver again to Upper Canada. As we saw last week, reformers in both colonies had kept in touch with each other, even though there was no definite plan for a coordinated rebellion. But one Upper Canadian reformer in particular, you guessed it, William Lyon Mackenzie, was determined to take advantage of the situation. As the crisis in Lower Canada descended into military strife, and especially after Governor Head agreed to let all the British regulars stationed in Upper Canada march off to the Lower Colony, Mackenzie saw an opportunity to act. There was so much at stake, at least as he saw it. Freedom from tyranny and oppression, the chance to make history, and with the colony denuded of regular troops, one very great opportunity to overthrow the government and establish a Republic of Upper Canada. We last really looked at Upper Canada to trace the tumultuous about-face in the fortunes of reform that followed from the appointment of Sir Francis Bond Head as Lieutenant Governor in the colony. Remember, Governor Head had initially appointed two reformers, John Rolfe and Robert Baldwin, to the Executive Council only to fall out with them almost immediately. The reformers insisted that the colony already enjoyed responsible government and that the governor needed to consult his executive before acting. The governor had not so respectfully disagreed, and the fight uh, frothed and foamed and boiled over to the point where Head disbanded the assembly and called a new election. Then he promptly put himself at the front of a pseudo-political party of loyalists and trounced the reformers in the election in the summer of 1836. The reformers were dejected. Baldwin sailed off to Europe and to reminisce in his sorrows. But William Lyon Mackenzie sat, brooded, and planned. That's where we left off. All through 1837, reformers in the colony watched events in Lower Canada with great interest. And when the news of the Russell Resolutions reached Canadian shores in April, reformers in Upper Canada were equally galled at the British government's response to Papineau and the Patriots' 92 resolutions. But politics in colonial Canada was always distinctly local, and so it was that the actions of the Tories in Upper Canada remained the main grievance. It didn't help that the Tories seemed to want to elongate their mandate without good reason. At this time, parliaments were to be dissolved at the death of a monarch. And so, when King William IV died in the summer of 1837, to be replaced by his niece Victoria, a new government ought to have been formed. But the Tories under Governor Head vacillated. Reform may have been beaten back by the loyalists in 1836, but they were by no means a spent force. All through the summer of 1837, William Lyon Mackenzie and several other reform advocates led a campaign to revive the fortunes of reform. And to do this, they went back to the well of loyal reform tactics, that is, finding some technique that had already been used in the mother country to advocate for political reform and then adapting it for Canadian purposes. The option they chose this time, political unions. A political union was a mix between a local activist group and a local representative body. The goal of the political union was to create bodies of local people who could express the feelings and desires of subjects Across the colony. Now, could these unions also be used later as a basis for military action, something like the equivalent of a militia? Mackenzie admitted that yes, they could. But he also protested that military action wasn't what they were intended for. And while Mackenzie might have been dissembling, it's probably true that most people who joined these unions did not have rebellion on their mind that summer they were protesting what they saw as an oppressive government and demanding reform, but they hoped to get it peacefully. Of course, this was the 1830s, so when folks gathered to talk politics, there was always the chance that drunken rowdiness and cudgels could enter the fray, and they certainly did. Crowds of Orange Lodge supporters crashed the party at several meetings, breaking up the assemblies, At a few other meetings, it didn't even come to violence as local Tories simply outvoted reformers who were forced to retreat to a separate meeting to pass their own resolutions. But at a number of other meetings, reformers managed to form what they wanted, that is, political unions, who expressed frustration at the lack of government reform and the violence that greeted any public calls for political change. Still, by the autumn of 1837, It's safe to say that even though agitation abounded, there was as yet no organized plan for rebellion in Upper Canada. No plan, that is, except perhaps in the mind of William Lyon Mackenzie. It's not clear exactly when Mackenzie decided that it would come to a test of arms. The first recorded instance of Mackenzie mentioning this to anyone else came at a small meeting of reformers in late October. And where do they meet? Well, in the back of a brewery, of course, owned by John Dole, a strong reform supporter. And by the way, if anyone wants to start a historic-themed craft brewery, then my vote is for Dole's. I already have the names lined up. Anyone for Insurrection India Pale Ale? How about Family Compact Farmhouse Ale? But I digress. The Dole's brewery meeting came at an auspicious moment, only a few days earlier, Governor Head had ordered the British regulars stationed in the colony to march east to Lower Canada. And so, to the band of reformers gathered at Dole's Brewery, Mackenzie suggested a bold plan. Surely, Mackenzie said, now was the time to strike. It wouldn't take much to turn events in their favor. A small group of committed supporters some brawny men who worked as axe makers and foundry men for the very local reformers who sat around the table that night could quietly march to government house seize the governor and then secure the thousand muskets held in the local garrison with the troops gone to lower canada the whole apparatus of government was only guarded by a handful of men it would be a neat and quick coup d'etat then With the capital in their hands, reformers could call out for all reformers to descend upon the city. Surely, many would come to reinforce the brave few who acted first. But this was quite radical talk, and another reformer, a Dr. Morrison, a more cautious man, denounced the idea as treason. It couldn't and shouldn't be done. Mackenzie withdrew his suggestion, and the meeting ended. But Mackenzie didn't let go of the idea. From the brewery that night, he went to speak to the reformer John Rolfe. This was the much-respected lawyer and doctor who had briefly sat in head's executive council. Rolfe seems to have been at least open to some kind of scheme. And with Rolfe's support, Mackenzie went back to the reluctant Dr. Morrison and somehow eventually won him over to the principle of some kind of action. Mackenzie was an orator, a bit hot-headed for sure, but he could be convincing, especially to a sympathetic audience. Still, before they did anything, Rolf and Morrison told him that they wanted more evidence that the scheme could work. This was the point when Mackenzie called in his loyal supporter, Jesse Lloyd. It would be Lloyd's job to travel to Lower Canada and discuss these plans with the Patriot. Lloyd headed downriver to Montreal And we saw at the outset of episode six, Lloyd did meet with Thomas Storl Brown and other Patriot leaders, just before violence broke out between the Sons of Liberty and Doric Club loyalists in Montreal. Brown later in life wrote that he couldn't have discussed plans of rebellion with Lloyd because he didn't, at that point, know of any plans. And this might have been technically true. Colborne did take the Patriot by surprise by his early action but it's also the kind of thing you would say when rebellion fails. And it's also true that violence was absolutely in the air in Lower Canada by the time of Lloyd's visit, and the patriots were ready to act. Lloyd returned to Upper Canada with a letter that he and Mackenzie claimed was a secret message of a planned action. Mackenzie took this to Rolfe and Morrison and other reformers to convince them of the need to act now but the cautious man wanted more reassurance. This was mid-November, 1837. And that's when Mackenzie said he could provide it. He headed to the area just north of Toronto called the Home District. It was a hotbed of reform support in the colony. Mackenzie was certain, absolutely certain, that he could show that there were thousands of upper Canadians who were jumping at the chance to overthrow the Tories. Over the next two weeks, the latter half of November 1837, even as Patriot leaders were fleeing Montreal and Colborne was sending out British troops to attack Patriot strongholds in the Richelieu Valley, Mackenzie took his case for rebellion to the farmers north of Toronto. While he had told Ralph and Morrison he was merely heading north to demonstrate that there was already support for rebellion, in fact, he busied himself trying to drum up the support which he claimed already existed. Standing up in front of the local farmers, he conjoled, threatened, and inspired his audiences. There were all the usual reform grievances about the corrupt, money-grubbing cadre of officials who hoarded power for their own benefit, about religious discrimination, how the family compact put the Anglican church on a pedestal above all others. But to these, he needed to add urgency He needed to show that the time for action was now, not later, not in an election, nor in another petition, but now, by hoisting a gun and marching on Toronto. Mackenzie claimed that if the reformers didn't act, then the government was going to come for them. It always helps to add a little xenophobia to your stirrings, so he told his audience that the government also planned to put guns in the hands of Indians, blacks, and Catholics all the boogeymen of mid-19th century Protestantism. And then he argued that if it came to rebellion, which surely it would, then the farmers of Upper Canada would not want to be like the Loyalists in the American Revolution, the ones who had come to Upper Canada. Remember how the revolutionaries had seized the Loyalists' property, and they were forced to flee as refugees? Better to be, this time, on the side of liberty and rebellion. Come out to fight there was, he said, a plan already in place. Prominent and eminently respectable reformers, men like John Rolfe, supported the plan. Once the reformers marched on Toronto and seized power, Rolfe would agree to take charge in a provisional government until elections could be held. Mackenzie had already in his newspaper on November 16th, published a draft constitution of a new Republic of Upper Canada. It spoke to the many grievances of upper Canadian reformers, guaranteeing religious equality, the right to bear arms, hello Americans, freedom of the press, freedom from military conscription, trial by jury, and, amongst other things, no state lotteries. So yeah, it was a a grab bag of things. But it spoke to the mid-19th century American-inspired Republican virtues. And there was certainly a market for these ideas amongst the people to whom he spoke violent overthrow of a government, though, was a little more serious. And here Mackenzie tread lightly. He claimed that there would, in fact, be no need for violence. The city and government were not defended by any significant force. Certainly you should bring your weapons, but you probably wouldn't need to use them. In fact, by bringing your weapons, you would ensure that there would be no violence. At the end of November, Mackenzie headed back to Toronto to tell Rolf and Morrison and other reform leaders that he could now guarantee them a force of between four and 5,000 men. Rolf had heard reports of Mackenzie's activities and he was not pleased at the way Mackenzie had used his name to drum up support. But ultimately, Rolf went along with the plan. The reformers now set a date of December 7th for the uprising. The rebels would gather just north of Toronto at the inn of a reformer named John Montgomery. Once they were all gathered at Montgomery's Inn, they would march down the road, Yonge Street in fact, and take the city, the government, and the colony. It started to go wrong even before it began. In early December, Mackenzie headed back to the country north of Toronto to prepare for the 7th of December start date. Meanwhile, in Toronto, John Rolfe heard a rumour that the militia was to be called out and the rebel leaders were to be arrested. He wrote to another reformer just north of the city, David Gibson. If this was true, Gibson thought, they had better act sooner rather than later. So Gibson sent word around the region that the attack was to be moved up not as originally planned on the Thursday, December 7th, but instead to Monday, December 4th. When Mackenzie heard of this, he was furious. Mackenzie thought, correctly as it turned out, that Rolf was being too jittery, but it was too late. Some reformers began to march. Hundreds came with and often without guns, traipsing across the countryside north of Toronto towards Montgomery's Tavern. By the afternoon of Monday, December 4th, several hundred reformers had gathered at the tavern. Mackenzie had promised that food and guns would await them, but the recruits to rebellion found neither in abundance. Indeed, what they found was that a prominent Tory had rented the inn on those exact days, and so he became, much to his consternation, the rebel's reluctant companion, and essentially their hostage. The movement of hundreds of men up roads and across fields, especially with so many carrying weapons, was not the kind of thing to go unnoticed. Loyalists north of Toronto saw what was happening and some tried to get word to Toronto. A small group of Loyalists near Montgomery's Inn decided that they would try to get word to the capital. They mounted their horses and tried to gallop through on the road. Rebels on guard near the inn were able to stop and capture several of the men but a few others raced free. One of those who was stopped, a Colonel Robert Moody, took out his pistol and fired it into the air. He seemed to want to scare off the rebels so that he could be free. Instead, he was the one who was shot. He fell from his horse and died soon after. In Toronto, rumors had already been spreading about the possible activity, but these were, at the time, just rumors. Word had been sent for the militia to be called out but otherwise the governor did nothing and did not seem to think that any other action needed to be taken. The chief exception to this laissez faire approach was James Fitzgibbon. Fitzgibbon had been warning Governor Head for weeks that trouble was brewing. Indeed Fitzgibbon hadn't wanted the governor to send away the troops in the first place And in early December, he pleaded that the governor take action against what he was sure was an impending attack upon the capital. Fitzgibbon was a little long in the tooth by this time, but he had a distinguished military career. Of Irish descent, he had joined the British military and come to Canada, fighting with distinction in the War of 1812. In fact, just about every Canadian knows about him, though probably not his name. For when Laura Secord, she of chocolate and historical fame, fled through the night to deliver a message about an impending American attack, it was to Fitzgibbon that she ultimately arrived and delivered her message. By the late 1830s, Fitzgibbon had become a regular appointee to many government posts and was clerk of the House of Assembly in Upper Canada. He was also a devout Tory and, to explain some of the animosity between him and Mackenzie, Back when that gang of Tories had dumped Mackenzie's printing press in Lake Ontario, Fitzgibbon had helped raise funds to pay the fines that were sentenced upon the culprits. On Monday, December 4th, his Tory spidey senses were tingling, and so he took several others with him up Young Street to see just exactly what the reformers were scheming at. At a certain point, Fitzgibbon and a few others turned back while several more men continued onward. These men had the luck, or misfortune, of meeting William Lyon Mackenzie, who himself had taken several men down Young Street to spy what was happening in the city and determine if anyone there knew of the impending attack. Mackenzie met his foes in the road and captured two to take back as prisoners to Montgomery's tavern, hoping that this would still keep their intentions a surprise. But at just that point, the loyalist who had managed to escape past the guards at Montgomery's tavern earlier came galloping past on his horse. He shouted to the men that Colonel Moody had been shot. Then one of Mackenzie's prisoners used the distraction to draw a pistol from his belt. For some reason, no one had thought it might be a good idea to disarm the prisoner. He shot one of his guards, killing him instantly. The two prisoners then galloped off leaving Mackenzie to head back to Montgomery's Tavern, now pretty much certain that the city would know that the rebels were coming. In Toronto, all was chaos and unpreparedness. The alarm was sounded. Church bells rang across the city to call out volunteers. By law, every man between the ages of 16 and 60 was part of the militia, though Duty and training consisted of one day of desultory drilling per year. Some militia men came to the governor's aid, but the city would need more volunteers. They sent out messages east, west, and south to Kingston and Hamilton and the Niagara region. But these messages would take time to arrive, and it would be even longer before other loyalists could respond. At Montgomery's Tavern, things were no clearer. was night by the time Mackenzie returned with the news that they had lost the element of surprise. What's more, now two men were dead, one loyalist and one rebel. It was a dispiriting sight for many who had come to the tavern thinking only of carrying their weapons but not necessarily using them. Mackenzie opted to do nothing for the night but to wait for the morning. On the Tuesday morning, Mackenzie formed his men into companies and, after much organizing, began to march them into the city. At least, they started to march. Yet before too long, they caught sight of a wagon in the distance. Or was it a cannon? The rebels ran to the side of the road at that thought. Someone scouted ahead to determine that no, it really was just a wagon, and then they needed to be organized all over again. But by this time, everyone was hungry, so party was dispatched to go to the home of a prominent Tory who lived nearby and get the lady of the household to deliver up some food, a task she wasn't especially keen to do of course. In the city, Governor Head had decided to stall for time. That morning he'd been negotiating with reform politicians to see who would agree to go north and engage in a parley with the rebels. Finally, John Rolfe and Robert Baldwin agreed to go. Yes, the two men who he had tussled with over their place on the Executive Council. And yes, John Rolfe, the man who was very much in league with Mackenzie in the first place. Another man went along to carry the flag of truce. They reached the rebels while they were stalled and awaiting food the parley ensued and it seems that the outcome of the negotiations was that Rolf and Baldwin agreed to go back to the governor and ask for amnesty for all those who were involved or at least this might have been what was negotiated the accounts of what was said at the parley come from men who later wanted to save their reputations after the rebellion's failure so perhaps they were just discussing how to end everything certainly that's what one of the negotiators robert baldwin would have wanted Baldwin was, to his death, a loyal reformer. But a more plausible explanation is that the parley was, at least for John Rolfe, a distraction. What Rolfe really wanted was for Mackenzie and the rebels to follow him back into the city. When Rolfe left the parley, he rushed off to gather up other rebel forces in the city, telling them to gather at a tavern and await the arrival of Mackenzie's men before joining forces with the rebels. The only problem was that Mackenzie didn't come. At this point, Mackenzie seems to have lost his head. Instead of proceeding directly into the city, he dithered, and he also decided that now, with everything hanging in the balance, would be a good time to go settle some scores. He took a force to the home of a Dr. Horn, who was a regular critic of Mackenzie, and then proceeded to burn the home to the ground. Then he wanted to do the same thing to another home, It took all the cajoling and pleading of other rebels in the troop, especially one man, Samuel Lount, to stop Mackenzie's bout of score setting and get him back on track. All of the rebel force then returned to Montgomery's tavern. It was now, later in the afternoon, but some in the rebel troop realized that something needed to be done. The time to act was now. They convinced Mackenzie to get all of the men at their command and head back into the city. At this point, though, after having marched partway to Toronto, been frightened by the phantom cannon, and then put off by the delayed parley only to march back to where they'd all started, it seems that quite a few of those who had initially come with plans of rebellion simply just didn't bother to go along. In the end, Mackenzie only had several hundred rebels with him when they advanced back up Young Street. That's when they ran into a picket established by James Fitzgibbon. Fitzgibbon had actually acted against the orders of Governor Head. Head was convinced that the city's position was weak, and so he ordered all Loyalist forces to retreat to a central point in the city. But Fitzgibbon had sent a small troop of about 20 men up the road to act as a warning picket. It was dusk as Mackenzie and his men approached the picket. The two sides opened fire on each other, And here is where things went wrong again for the rebels. Some of those who were present had a decent amount of military training. These were the men out in front. They did as they were trained to do when confronting an enemy in this kind of situation. They fired their muskets and then dropped to the ground. This prevented them from being shot in the back by their friends and would allow them to reload while those behind fired their own weapons. But the men behind didn't seem to know any of this. All they saw in the hazy light of dusk was a whole troop of men in front of them fall to the ground after a rush of musket fire, seemingly shot to death. Frightened, they took the entirely reasonable decision of getting the heck out of there. They bolted. At the same time, the small group in the picket, knowing that they were outnumbered, also bolted. And so that was the first glorious battle of the rebellion of 1837 in Upper Canada. Two sides firing their weapons and then running off in the opposite direction. And they say Canadian history isn't thrilling. When the rebels arrived back at Montgomery's tavern, many opted to just keep on running and go home. This was not what many had signed up for. So Mackenzie woke up the next day to a reduced force, but he still had hope. After all, the original plan for the uprising had set a date of Thursday, December 7th. That was the next day. All he needed to do was to wait one more day and surely the genuinely irate citizens of Upper Canada would flock to his banner. That, at least, was his hope. So on Wednesday, Mackenzie waited. From Toronto, John Rolfe decided that this had all gone way too far. He sent messages to Mackenzie that they needed to call off the fight. Rolfe knew, of course, other loyalists had been arriving in the city the night before and they continued to arrive as the day wore on. A large contingent came from Hamilton under the Tory politician and militia captain Alan McNabb. This almost immediately set off a fight between McNabb and Fitzgibbon because Governor Head wanted to put McNabb in charge of the loyalist forces but Fitzgibbon was certain that he was the senior officer It goes to show you that it's never too tense a moment for the human ego to assert itself. All through the Wednesday, loyalists continued to arrive in the city, ready to defend the government. By midday on the Thursday, December 7th, the day that Mackenzie had initially set for the uprising, the loyalist forces were ready. It was, in the end, the reversal of what Mackenzie had wanted. He had intended to gather the reformers at Montgomery's Tavern and then march on the city, taking the governor and transforming politics in Upper Canada with one fell swoop. Instead, after the debacle of miscues and misfires, it was the loyalist forces who marched up Yonge Street to go face Mackenzie and the several hundred rebels who remained at the Tavern. The expected horde of supporters simply had not shown up. For those at Montgomery's tavern, dawn came and the day advanced, but the large swath of volunteers did not arrive. Mackenzie had thought that at least four or five thousand men would arrive to support him. By the time the Loyalist militia arrived that day, there were only about 450 rebels left. One key advisor did arrive. This was Anthony van Egmond, a Dutch settler who claimed to be descended from European aristocrats when, in fact, he'd invented this identity when fleeing from Europe ahead of serious criminal charges. Now Van Egmond also claimed to have extensive military experience, which might or might not have been true. But by the mid-1830s, he was a relatively prosperous, reform-supporting farmer, and when Mackenzie was trying to convince Rolf and Matthews to back his planned coup, they insisted he recruit someone with military experience to lead the attack. The man chosen was Van Egmond but by the time Van Eggman arrived at Montgomery's Inn on the morning of December 4th, he took a quick look around and decided, not unreasonably, that the situation was dire. It was his professional opinion, he said, that the rebels should disband and flee to the United States. Mackenzie was having none of it. He shoved his pistol in Van Eggman's face and told him to change his mind. Not surprisingly, the rebel general did. Yeah, sure, let's fight. Mackenzie was definitely and thoroughly in charge by this point, for good or ill. At midday on the Thursday, Mackenzie sent a group of about 50 men east of the city with a plan to burn the bridges over the Don River to cut off other Loyalists trying to reinforce the city. The troop went east and set fire to some buildings but were driven off by Loyalists in the area. Shortly after these men left, a sentry came back to the inn to say that he had spotted the Loyalist forces approaching. They marched in three columns north, with about 1,000 men in the central column. They came with two cannons in tow and carrying government-supplied muskets, with bayonets glistening in the sun. Two bands played martial themes as they marched, and residents of Toronto followed along behind the whole troop. It was almost, apart from the threat of impending violence, a giant parade. The battle itself did not last long. About half of the rebels did not even have weapons and so hid inside the tavern or ran away. The other half began to fire upon their attackers, but they were simply outgunned. The Loyalist militia might not have been well-trained, but they had many more guns. And the cannons fired upon the rebels, sowing fear with each roaring blast. In a matter of minutes, the rebels fled and the Loyalist forces were triumphant. Governor Head, who had accompanied the militia up Young Street, cheered along with the rest. He also ordered that the troops burn down Montgomery's tavern, forever destroying the possibility that hipster Torontonians could go and have a drink in the place where the battle had been fought. A real tragedy. He also ordered another house burned, that of David Gibson, the reformer who had sent out messages calling for the earlier-than-expected attack. The governor mostly wanted to capture the rebel leaders, but many had escaped, including Mackenzie. The militia had captured a large number of men nearby, some of whom probably weren't even rebels, but who simply were living nearby. Head proceeded to give the captives a stern lecture on loyalty and duty. But then, demonstrating his magnanimity, Head let them go, telling them to learn a useful lesson from the events of that day. This was the general process that would be followed. In stamping down on rebellion and in punishing those who took part, officials were mainly concerned in punishing the leaders. It all could seem to have been rather neatly and tidily over and done with. A few days of anxiety, a smattering of altercations, one short half-battle, and William Lyne Mackenzie's scheme had been foiled. Except, of course, for the fact that Mackenzie himself and many others had managed to get themselves away from Montgomery's tavern. Mackenzie quickly fled in disguise for the border and the hoped-for safety of the United States. The fight at the north end of Young Street was done, but the plans for rebellion weren't dashed yet. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do, if you want, leave a five-star review. We're nearing the end of the year 1837 now, but there is a lot more to come. Next week, we're back in Lower Canada because the rebellion was far from over there. The campaign in the Richelieu Valley had ended, but the colony remained rife with Patriot supporters. They still hoped to fend off the British military and, over the course of the winter, perhaps turn their fortunes around. They didn't know about events in Upper Canada, and there had only been really the one defeat at St. Charles, in early December 1837, it still seemed that it might be possible to turn events in their favour. 1867 and All That is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and produced by Matthew Hayes. Thanks to Trent Online at Trent University for the generous support to make the podcast possible. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.